out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Yes, we do. This week, it's going to be the turn of Lawrence Myers, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and also his time in music, film, and also his new publication that came out, I think, a year ago, which is titled Hunky Dory, in brackets, who knew? Anyway... Working with such people as, um, well, the Kinks, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, and obviously David Bowie and a lot, lot of stuff about Tony DeFries. So um, I was curious. I wanted to speak to him. So we did. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, oh, yes, just to say, just as a little bit of a thing, um, he's very excited because he's just been able to book in for his COVID test that he's going to have or vaccination very soon so uh, he gets a little bit distracted with his friends contacting him so that's it but I'll leave that in because it makes it very current anyway look Lawrence tell us more about the book and when it all came together now well I probably um probably decided some years ago that I, I maybe should do something and it started off as he, as I understand these things often do is you do it for your children now, who's interested will your children will be interested in your children's children and, and I do like to write. I've, I've never had a lot of time to write, but I do like to write. So I suppose from the time I started in earnest was probably 18 months before it came out, two years before it came out. Right. Uh, and I decided to, I mean, I mean, mainly because, to be honest, so many people said to me, you should write it down. You know, you should write it down. Um, it's so interesting, and you should write it down. So I did. Yes, and um, and was it an emotion? Did you find was it a surprise when you started to put it together? As in, I mean, having spoke to a few people, they they kind of there's certain subjects that they kind of put to one side, then they pull it out, and then they look at it again, put it, and then they bring it, and they think I need to deal with this because I've actually not really thought about it because for various reasons. Well, I think the thing is, I didn't. I didn't deal with my personal life very much, other than a short history, which I which I give people permission to skip, because I always do. If I read a biography and it starts telling about what their great grandfather did, I just skip it until we start I start reading about what they did. Um, so there was nothing in terms of emotion that I felt I don't want to deal with that because I didn't deal with. I mean, you know, business can be very emotional, and for certain, it can be very traumatic. Um, so, uh, no, I just got on with it. I, and the big decision to me was to what to write about. Because so, I decided <clears throat> just write about music, primarily about music. And the reason was that my my career in the music business was, if I say so myself, quite illustrious because of who? Yes. Are you still there? Yeah, sorry, someone tried to call me, I've stopped it. Oh. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, because I, 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 you know, I dealt with such important people. So it's not that I was, you know, it's not that I was so interesting, but the people I dealt with were so interesting. And when I went into film and I went into theatre, with with um, sometimes success and sometimes not success, 
but I was not I wasn't at the heart of it you know I, I wasn't dealing you know in film I wasn't dealing with you know the, the biggest film stars in the world and the biggest directors in the world and the biggest writers in the world and in fact so really my knowledge of um, the music business I think is rather special and I decided stop there otherwise the book would have gone on for, for a long long time too long because yeah. you're you know obviously this is kind of to do with really the, the you, you were there at the very sort of almost the birth of what you know we now know as popular music rock and roll whatever yeah. and actually that the interesting thing is that there isn't anything particularly before that to look back and go oh what did they do what do I need to do to avoid these pitfalls so how did you manage to do such an amazing amount of navigating kind of almost kind of pioneering well it sort of it, it sort of fell into my lap in a way I always loved music of all sorts you know and I love pop music and I love most of the music of the day um, and when I was 16 you know I talk about it in my book um, my mother said, you know, what do you want to do? I, you know, I, what, what I wanted to do, I wanted to be a Latin American percussionist, but that would have been the end of my life because she would have killed me where I stood. So I, I said, oh, I won't be that. And she gave me, you know, the Jewish mother's list of things that you can do. And it was doctor, dentist, blah, blah, blah. And the accountant was the last one. I said, I'll be that. So I, at the age of 16, I, I got articles, which is what you did in those days. You got sort of apprentice articles for the princely sum of 15 shillings a week, 75p a week, which even in the olden days was not a lot of money. Um, and uh, I hated it and I wasn't interested in it. And I failed my exams a couple of times and eventually I qualified as a chartered accountant. I was articled to a very tiny firm with, I had very little experience and I had very little interest um, and I thought I'll never get a job. I, I wouldn't hold a job down because I wasn't good enough. So what I did is I went into business on my own. I found a, another guy who I had known over the years who qualified, a very nice guy called Ellis Goodman. And we went into business together. And we got, a, we got somebody in the music business as a client, a guy called Mickey Most. Right. And I just, I just, you know, I just grabbed him. I said to Ellis... Ellis had the connection. He he had met the guy. He met a guy on a plane who, who was going to finance Mickey Most. And um, and I knew who Mickey Most was. I bought House of the Rising Sun. You know, so I said to Ellis, "Look, I'll, I'll deal with him." And I, and that's what got me into the music business because it was booming. It was absolutely booming. It was a new. It wasn't a new business, but it was a. It was a new business in terms of uh, people bursting onto the scene. Yeah. It, it, pre previously, the record business was, a record was usually capturing three minutes of a very well-known star. Uh, you know, somebody was a star of films or radio and, and they would make a record. Um, but suddenly, radio is what did it. If you could get a song played on the radio, kids would buy it. And, and so, so a star could be made out of getting radio play for a new record. And that's what was new. Yes. That's really what was new. And I was going to say, I mean, 
did you sort of find yourself having to really play catch up very quickly? Because obviously a lot of this, you know, there's, there's big money involved and some really quite amazing characters because obviously Mickey most, you had his zeitgeist moment, didn't you? And then suddenly falls off. Yeah. But then, you, you know, you do work with some other, other heavyweights. And with most things in life, you, you have a certain innocence until one day something comes along and whacks you quite badly and you get floored. Did you, did you have any of those kind of moments in those early years? Well, because it was all very new, um, there was, you know, I was an accountant. That's how I got into the business. And there were no go-to accountants for the music business because the music business was sort of old, old world and not full of young people looking for accountants. <coughs> so, and I got on with them very well. So through Mickey, Mickey was recording the animals and Herman's Hermits and Donovan. I met them, I met other people. I went to Midland with Mickey, went here, went there, met other people. Oh my God, you're an accountant. I was, well, I don't know, about 26 years old. Um, and I'd given my home number and I knew about them. So they could relate to me. So suddenly I was getting all of the, all of these mainly young people who suddenly were about to earning or about to earn a lot of money that needed an accountant. Mm. And, um, you know, it's what happened. They, you know, musicians all seem to go to the same doctor, to the same, you know, the same therapist, whatever. <laughs> and I was the accountant. Yes, I know. Then after five years, after five years of accountancy, which I did not enjoy, and I felt very restricted because in those days, professional etiquette in accountancy meant you couldn't go after clients. You know, you couldn't say, look, let me represent you. You had to wait to be approached. And then you had to write to the old accountant and say, is there any reason why, he, you know, I shouldn't approach him? And I found that very frustrating. So in 1970, um, I had established myself as someone well-known in the business because I'd represented the Rolling Stones, Zeppelin, animals, and on my side of the business, you are as important as whoever you represent. Yes, absolutely. So but, I, you know. <clears throat> I was going to say, but the characters you you met and and worked with, you know, these are the heavyweights, aren't they? They're the legendary managers yeah. that go down in like the kind of gangster managers, really, of bands, really, like Don Harden. So how? Yeah. I mean, what was, you know, you're, in, you're under 30, you know, you've probably been around a few times, but not a lot. So you meet someone like Don. What was that kind of experience like for you? Well, it, uh, you know, I'm from Finsbury Park. So, you know, I, I didn't go to, I, I wasn't educated in the Gilded Cage. I was educated in Holloway. Um, and my, my parents, they had a sweet shop and uh, everybody used to come in and, you know, some of them, every now and one would say to my father, Jerry, would you mind holding this parcel for me? And it would be a gun or something. My father would say, I'd rather not. <laughs> so I, I was aware of, I was aware, not part of, but I was aware that there is a seamier side of life. So none of these things, you know, meeting Don Arden, and Don Arden was, he was a caricature. He was a wonderful character. And, um, I mean, he, he did, he was, he was a bit of a gangster. He, he, uh, he and a guy called Patrick Meehan, before my time, used to have physical fights over who was going to manage various artists. But it didn't, it didn't phase me. For whatever reason, it didn't phase me. Yes, that's 
that's quite amazing, isn't it? And one thing I've noticed with a lot of people, you know, in the world of entertainment, they normally have kind of a five-year period where they're they're on that kind of moment, you know. They, I suppose, the zeitgeist moment, but they don't manage to keep it going. You know, they they sort of take their eye off the ball, or they just get tired. Well, I think I think that's true. I think it's true of me. Um, I had five years as an accountant where I represented some of the biggest names in the business. And I then went into the business my, uh, in 1970. I started a production company. Because I was so well known as a representative of artists, I got a deal with a record company who gave me enough money to fund a record production company. And the first record I put out was Love Grows, Where My Rosemary Goes, which was a huge number one hit. And, yes. I, and I, I left practice, I was looking after, I was the accountant, apart from Mickey Mose, I was the accountant to Tony McCauley, a very, very successful writer-producer, and Mike Leander, a very successful writer-producer. So I did a deal with a record company for those two, for the product of those two. And, and the record company, Bell Records, gave me the money to do that. Um, and Tony McCauley did the first record, which was a huge hit. And after, they started coming. And then, and then I, because I, I was still basking, if you like, in the... It, 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 uh, sorry. Sorry, David, but this COVID thing is all my friends now calling me, asking me how I did it. Um, <laughs> uh, um, I'm still basking in the reflected glory of these, uh, of these, you know, the major artists that I dealt with. And also, I was becoming very successful as a production. Yes, absolutely. Company. And then, and then um, I did a deal. I didn't think I had... I hadn't had skills of management, on hands management. I was very good and very comfortable making record deals and making deals. So I did a deal. I brought in a guy called David Joseph, who brought with him the New Seekers, who he was managing very successfully. So I had the New Seekers. Um, I had you know, these records I made that were becoming hits. Um, and then in walked Mr. Mr. Bowie. Yes, which is kind of... Um... Quite an amazing period, isn't it? Because because I've done an interview with Gerald Angie and and taught, you know and Bowie was I confess was my first love, my first single, and that was a great one because it could have been Gary Glitter, which wouldn't have been so brilliant. So I stuck well, with Bowie, but then I had know, Gary Glitter as well, you know. Oh, you had Gary Glitter. Well, well, you know, in a way, he was the big thing. He was the star, wasn't he? <clears throat> Let's face it. He he was. I, I have to point out, as I point out very strenuously in my book, because it's very important to me. Um, because I had huge success with Gary, huge success. He bought my house, but it was 20 years, 20 years before he was revealed to be, you know, just a totally unacceptable, vile person. Yes. Um, so I had Gary, who was being a huge success, and I had, and I had you know, the Edison Lighthouse, and then a guy called Tony DeFries brought uh, David Bowie to see me. David Bowie was not successful. He had not had any success. He had one album out, The Man Who Sold the World. It was not a success. Um, and Mercury spent quite a lot of money on it, and it was not a success. So the record industry were not particularly not particularly keen on signing him. So I, I, I signed him. Um, I, I brought Tony DeFries in. I signed him 
I signed David for management, um, and which you could in those days, you couldn't do it now, quite rightly. I signed him for management and, and publishing and records. Um, and I, uh, sorry, this is going to keep on happening. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I don't, okay. I don't know how to deal with it. Um, other than just keep declining, people who think I'm being very rude. So, uh, yes, so I, I forgot where I was. Yes, well, with, with David, uh, well, Tony and David. Oh, yeah, so yeah, what, yeah. What, what made you want to sign them? Because, because Bowie's I, 60s I wanted, to sign I wanted to sign David because a year before, I had gone to the Ivan Novello Awards, I think with Tony McCauley, who won Best Songwriter of the Year. And David had made a record called Space Oddity. And I thought it was bloody wonderful. And what I liked about it, so I'd... I'd and I, I'd bought the record, you know, the man who sold to it, even though it wasn't successful. And what I liked about David was two things. He didn't always write love songs. He didn't write his songs, you know, which, which all everybody, even the Beatles, you know, almost every song was a love song in some form or other. And David didn't. And the other thing is he sang in an English accent, which I quite liked because, you know, like the animals, um, you know, and, in the studio, they sounded like they were from the Mississippi Delta, but when you spoke to them, they were from Newcastle. Mm. And they suddenly, you know, suddenly change. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with it, but it was just, anyway, I like, that's why I like the Kinks also for that reason. For, I like Ray Davis for that reason. He sang in, in a London accent, he was a London boy, and he wrote about London things. Yes. <clears throat> so with, with the Bowie gang, because it's kind of interesting, because he wasn't going anywhere particularly well, you know, especially in the sort of six. No, no, I, I pay, what happened is I paid, which was a huge risk for me. You know, I wasn't a big company. I was Lawrence Myers, I had a wife, you know, a wife, three kids and a mortgage. And I paid for him to make seven songs, which essentially were hunky-dory, became hunky-dory. And with those, and with that, that acetate, a famous Bowie promo, which is now worth a fortune, I, of course, threw all mine away, who knew? Um... I got to deal with RCA, but if I wouldn't have put the money up, we would not have got a record deal because no one was interested in David until I, I provided David with essentially what was going to be hunky-dory. And people listened to that and they said, wow, we'll sign him. It wasn't mm. easy. There was not a line of people. Well, I know. And what was kind of boggling? Was that, you know, the stuff that Bowie David was releasing in the 60s, I often find myself wondering, A, why he was recording it, because, you know, you think there was the Beatles, Stones, the Kinks, Jimi Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane, and then his kind of work, but you'd have thought, hmm, interesting. So you would have never put any money on this character to sort of come from his kind of slightly Anthony Newley world into this kind of amazing kind of futuristic kind of rock uh, which had never I, been done before, which I think is, that's why I'm sort of interested how you could spot something. Was it his well, kind first, of... first of all, I happened to be obsessed with Anthony Newley. He did sing like Anthony Newley. No. I, I loved Anthony Newley. If I could have managed, forget the Rolling Stones, Bowie, forget everybody. If I could have managed Anthony Newley, I, I wouldn't have made the money, but I'd have been a very happy guy. I was just his hugest fan. And I did actually have some business dealings with him in later years, but sadly, he was by then quite ill, and then he died. Um, yeah, 
So uh, I think you know, the, the big thing with, with David about all of this is that it's now a history of historical interest and remarkable, but then it wasn't. You know, I called my book Who Knew? Because as I was writing it, I kept saying, who knew? You know, I had a meeting with Mick Jagger when I was his accountant. And at one point, every pensions came up and he said, well, maybe I should think about it, Lawrence. After all, Lawrence, I'm not going to be singing rock and roll when I'm 70. And we laughed at the thought. You know? Yes. And it was, it was who knew all these things were happening. I mean, I thought, I really signed David. I, I, my big thing was songwriters. I signed Tony McCauley and Mike Leander because they were great songwriters. I love songwriters. And I thought David was a very good songwriter. The first time I actually saw him in the Ellsbury, after I signed him, um, I went to Ellsbury to see him. There was about 300 people in the room. He was very uninspiring. He sort of stood there flapping his arms about, singing his songs, very poor reception. And, but he was a great songwriter. That's why I signed him. And then, of course, he went into character. His mime background, his natural theatrical, his natural theatricality that he has had um, came in. And once he went into character and he went out on stage, well, different worlds. Yes. I know. It was kind of Angie and Tony DeFries, really, wasn't it? A main man, the whole sort of, you know, Jerry Miller and that, that gang helped to elevate. Well, that was, that was afterwards. I, what happened was I, I, uh, David was actually signed to my company, Gem, and Tony DeFries, who brought David to me, was actually an employee of Gem. And then it was decided that David should go and live in America and work in America because he wanted to break America, which is very important. Um, and he had an American wife, so that gave him, you know, he could work there. So Tony said, why don't we open an American office um, and I'll run it? And I said, no, uh, you open an American office. I financed the opening of the office and I did a deal whereby I got a share of the gross income from all the artists that were signed to my company, signed to GEM, I assigned to Mainman. And that was DeFreeze, Dala, Mott the Hoople, and a whole load of others. And then at a point in time, uh, Tony said to me, it was very, very amicable. Uh, Tony said to me, uh, I, I should point out that when they were in my office, you know, and I had all these weird things going on in my office, I had the new seekers sort of office department, and they were all stand there, smile, clean your teeth, look, you know, singing harmony. I had Gary, who actually was a bloke, was a very blokey bloke, Gary. He liked to go, like go fishing, like to go have a beer. And then I had the, the Bowie. And it was somewhat schizophrenic for me. I would go from one to the other and have to sort of change my character to blend in. Um, and the Bowie, the expense of Bowie was getting out of hand. And I, I, I knew I couldn't control it. And I was finding it hard to control it in London. I would never been able to control it in America. So... Um, I did a deal. I assigned the masters of the reversion. I, my deal with RCA was um, the, the hunky dory, ziggy style, anything I gave them would revert to me after five years. And I assigned that to Tony, um, who 
uh, he told me he had a 50-50 deal with David. Um, I did question that. You know, he said, because Colonel Parker had a 50-50 deal. I said, but Colonel Parker had one client, Elvis Presley. So that was easier. How are you going to do a 50-50 deal if you've got all these other things going on? It wasn't, he said, don't worry about it. It wasn't my business. And at a point in time, <clears throat> um, Tony said to me, um, you're taking share of the gross, which is quite, you know, he said it's quite deserved. He said, but it's sort of hard. Is there a, is there a point in time? Is there a sum of money which um, you will, uh, you know, release your interest and your control? <clears throat> At that time, I was in, or, or David Bowie was in to me, for about £70,000. This is 1970. Mm. Which is what today? Half a million pounds today? I mean, you know, I, you know, and I, as I say, I was, you know, I was not a, not a big multi-company. I was just a guy who started a record company, started a business. Um, so I said, well, I want my money back, and I said, and it was an arbitrary figure, really. I said because I thought I'd never do it. If I could earn, say, five hundred thousand pounds in the next three years, you're free. And he did. So yes. Tony, paid, Tony paid me off and I had no longer had any interest, financial interest, but I had done very well out of it and I was perfectly happy. Which is good, which is good. And how did you, I mean, obviously that's, that's kind of a great, you know, feeling of being kind of clean with, with the sort of the break. And then when you've had that kind of experience, then how do you sort of, not so pick yourself up, but sort of then look for the next challenge. I mean, well, it wasn't so much picking myself up. It was this huge relief, you know. I mean, I had an awful lot on the line with David Bowie, and to get a huge check for the equivalent today, what five million pounds or something today, you know, it was just like that will do. That thank you very much, you know. You know, my house will not now disappear to bailiffs and. Um, you know, it was a huge, it was just a huge relief. And I had such a lot of other things going on. You know, I, I, I had my production deal with Bell, which was doing very, very well. Uh, Glitter was doing extraordinarily well. The New Seekers was doing extraordinarily well. And I started a company called Arcade Records, which was the invention of the compilation business. It had not existed. Yes. I, I invented it. The compilation. Well, because of my my strength with the record companies, I persuaded them it was, a, it was a very good thing to do. And it was all sorts of problems because I, I go into it in some detail in the book because it is quite complicated. But I had to persuade them to go to a lot of trouble and overcome all sorts of complications to allow all the various record companies to all give me a single, their singles, their hits, to put on my arcade label. Um, but I did it, and that was probably the most successful, financially successful deal I ever did. Yeah, which is incredible. So, because just fast forwarding slightly from that, I mean, theatre seems to be a very risky business to try and get into. So what yeah. made you suddenly feel like, yes, I might have a little... Well, I'll tell you why, because Mike Neander wrote the score to a musical called Matador. Okay. Yes. Mike Leander wrote the score. He went up. He he'd made a lot of money out of uh, Gary Glitter, a lot of money, 
went off to live in Spain and got involved in Spanish culture. And he came to me one day and said, listen to this. And he'd written this unbelievable score, musical score for a musical about uh, El Cordobes, who was a very famous 50s bullfighter. And um, I said, well, I, you know, I don't know anything about producing theater. Uh, I'll find a producer. And I couldn't, I, I phoned Don Black, the lovely Don Black, who, was, who, who had bridged over from pop music to theater. He was a very successful lyricist in the world of theater. And I said to Don, I, I'm looking for a producer for a musical. And he said, we all are, you know, there aren't any. There's only one, Cameron McIntosh, and he's busy. Um, so to cut a long story short, he's very funny, Don. I said, if you, if, if, if you call me back if you think of anyone. And two minutes later, the phone rang, and he said, write down Lawrence Myers. So we saw him, he said, you could do it. He said, you could do it. So, and uh, he, he'd been working on a musical with Adam Faith. He wanted to do, he wanted to do Alfie as a musical. And as it turned out, we couldn't do that. Hello? Yes. We couldn't do Alfie's musicals, the rights weren't available, so we did Budgie. So the first thing I ever did in theatre was to produce a West End musical, which is a bit like saying, um, I wouldn't mind being a doctor, so I'd do a bit of brain surgery, see if I like it. Um, and that failed, but I was in the business. Yes, which is quite extraordinary. I mean. I mean, because some of the things that you picked, and one of my favourite plays was the Jeffrey Bernardi's Unwell. I mean, obviously, yes. when you see something like that coming onto your desk, you don't think this is going to be an amazing sort of winner in, in terms well, of... Well, yeah, you, you, no, you did, because it had been a huge hit. And what happened was that Peter O'Toole, it was his favourite thing he'd ever done in theatre. He'd ever done in his life, actually. And he wanted it recorded for his son. He didn't want it recorded. So he was brought to me and he said, look, um, I just want to do it and we'll record it. Uh, I'll do it for a week and record it. So I said, no, it, it doesn't work. And I, eventually I persuaded him to do nine weeks. And the only doubt was because he had not been in the limelight or not been working very much, was everybody was a bit worried whether or not, you know, and he had this, he had this Rue um, reputation of being a wild man drinker, etc. Anyway, so the bookings were quite good. And then after the first review came out, we sold every ticket to every performance within a week. It was unbelievable. And he was unbelievable and it is unbelievable. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the BBC filmed it and I'm, about, I'm trying to persuade the BBC to put it out again. Well, they should have done it for Christmas. I mean, with your looking back, I mean, obviously, well, have there been any kind of moments where you think, God, that was a really tough year or that was a bit of a disastrous period of my life? Oh, I mean, every, every month, if not every week. Uh, it's a very up and down business. Um, you know, the world of entertainment. Yes, but you obviously kept in it and you didn't sort of let it beat you. And at the same time, your success rate is quite, from the outside, it is extraordinary. So I just wondered how you can manage to sometimes sleep at night knowing so many conversations and so many well of course i don't in my book i don't talk a lot about my failures i do i do mention them but one dwells more on the success i mean the people i turned down you know i i turned down queen i turned down, i turned down an awful lot of people that um uh, i can't go into it now you know no someone 
you know, it, it, it's in the book and I encourage people to buy it because it's, it's, it's entertaining. It's very interesting. Well, I have to say, Lawrence, it, it's been brilliant. And it's so great that I have to say that, you know, like, you know, with Donna Gillespie and yourself and all these other books, I mean, what I think is so good is that it kind of adds to those stories that we know and the narrative, but it's only one part of it. So knowing more about the man, main man in Tony DeFries and then your relationship and what you did kind of adds to this narrative because to be honest. I, I, I hope so. Because I think that's the kind of thing that I find kind of fascinating because when you dig down, you start going, oh, okay, it wouldn't, David wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been there and then Tony hadn't been there, but then it needed Angie as well to sort of say. Yeah, hey. absolutely. Uh, uh, Angie's underrated. Yes. In, in importance. Well, I think, really I, I think it was quite interesting because I guess you would have gone to the David Bowie exhibition, David Bowie Years at the V&A. And it was interesting in the sense that for me, I realised her not being in it or probably turning to freeze. Kind of. I, I, yeah, I didn't go to the exhibition. I, I probably paid for most of the clothes, so I'd already seen them. <laughs> <laughs> and when was the last time you, was that the last time you had a kind of any conversation with David was during that period in the 70s or did you? No, 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 we, it was all very fine. And then he and De Freeze fell out big time. And I tried, uh, RCA came to me and said, you're probably the only person that can bring them together, can you try? And there was a very famous, huge meeting in LA, which um, cost of which, considerable cost of which was covered by RCA, <coughs> where I had, we had a huge suite at this hotel and there was David and his then manager, Michael Lippmann, who I knew well, um, in one room and there was DeFries uh, in another room. And there was RCA and myself sort of in the middle room. And there was a big sort of living area. And I, I summed them both and I said, look, all you guys have ever done is make money for me. And you've, you're, you're not putting out records. And it doesn't matter who you are, believe me, if you do not put records out, your public will go and buy records by somebody else and you will fade. You have to put records out. So that was, that was, my last proper meeting mm. and that didn't go particularly well because it, um, Michael Lippmann came to me and said look this is because I knew him Michael he said look, this is really really embarrassing but uh, um, and he was very hesitant to say it but he said it David would like you to sign something to say you're not getting any money out of this and I just said do you tell David to go fuck himself I was furious. I mean, I'd gone through a huge amount of trouble. You know, I devoted a week of my life. Um, and I did see David after that, but it, he, by now, he associated me so much with DeFries, who he hated, that he was not warm to me at all. And yeah. he still was. And he was very appreciative of what, we'd, what I'd done. Yes. Were you, were you absolutely flabbergasted when you... We'd been whispered that kind of message had you not expected that no i hadn't i'd expected a little message saying thank you very much i deserved a message saying thank you very much I, there was nothing in it for me nothing were you, in it for me. Were, were you surprised that michael hadn't said to him actually that's a bit of a crap thing to say i, I think I, he, I think he possibly did because he was very he was very hesitant he was very apologetic um I don't know what I don't know what went on between Michael Lippmann and David, but uh, 
<clears throat> that's how the and then it all broke up anyway. And they, they didn't they didn't come to reconciliation. They did about three months later. Yeah, I know. It's kind of um, I mean, it's kind of an extraordinary story. And I guess you're probably thinking, you know, that's an amazing part. That must have been one of those amazing meetings to have been part of and to see this kind of period in, in sort of rock history. Well, well. Yeah, you know, I had a very interesting, very interesting um, episode with Stevie Wonder. Which, which, uh, who I almost managed. He came to us and wanted me to manage him. It's a long story, and you know, I, well, I am plugging the book, but you know, it's in the book. Hunky Dory, who knew Lawrence Myers? Yes. And that was me in conversation with Lawrence Myers, talking about his a new book and life in I don't know entertainment, music, film, theatre. There you go. The, the book is titled Hunky Dory. In brackets, who knew? Buy it, it's a classic. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived, and you can get those. Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, check them out. They might just change your life. Bye.